1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. It seems, it seems like the church of Jesus Christ is in a state of crisis. It seems like every day there is a new and fresh threat to the gospel. And it's hard to triage which threat is the most threatening. Is it the influence of Western decadence and materialism? Is it the ever-present presence of of the prosperity gospel in the global south? Is it the growing uh, life of pornography in almost every technological platform that we all carry around in our pockets that is constantly trying to rob us of our purity and holiness? Maybe it's the rise of the secularism in post-Christian West. Maybe it's the totalitarian regimes of the East and the Middle East. To make matters worse, we not only have to continue with our current threats, but also because we study history, we have to contend with the past failures and mistakes of the church. It seems like all of the church's past errors and sins, the mistakes that God's people have made down through the centuries, it seems like they're all floating in the conscience of uh, the modern mind like a bloated corpse that's been washed up from the riverbed of history. It's overwhelming. And so a lot of people find themselves looking like uh, Chicken Little, asking the question, is the sky falling? Can the church survive the 21st century? It may surprise you to know, though, that the church, at least from a human perspective, has never really stood on very solid ground. From the earliest days in the life of the church, from within, the church has had to deal with fear and anxiety and stupidity and, and heresy and, and sin of all different kinds. From the days of its inception, from the outside of the church, we've had to deal with all kinds of pressures and persecutions, things that are calling us and leading us away from Christ, sometimes by force, usually at the hand of suffering. This was true in Paul's day. If you look at verse 1 of this morning's text of chapter 3, you'll see that the Apostle Paul is writing his letter from prison. Paul is writing the church in Ephesus, but he's writing from where he's in prison. We're not really sure where that is, but maybe in Rome, right? He, he knows that they know that he's been in prison. And you can see that when you look at verse 13. Look at verse 13. It says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul knows that they know that he's in prison and he knows that they may be losing heart. What are we going to do? This is, this is the apostle to the Gentiles. We're a Gentile, like basically Gentile church. What's going to happen to the gospel if this, this apostle who is championing our Gentile inclusion into the gospel, if he ends up beheaded? What, what's God doing? This is the context of verses 1 through 13. And in these verses, Paul is going to explain how the gospel is, in fact, not in danger because of his present circumstances and suffering. As a matter of fact, his ministry is all systems go. The kingdom of God will not be hindered. The gospel is a work of God, and God's work 
always prevails. Amen? So let's read the text for ourselves, then I'll give you the points, and then we'll dig in. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and infallible word. Amen. Amen. Father, we pray that you would bless us with all of the rich spiritual blessings that you have for us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we behold what your son Jesus Christ has done on the cross to save sinners. Amen. I have five points for you this morning. Each one of them is longer than the next. Not really. Five points. Here they are. God's grace. The Gentile mystery. God's wisdom. Paul's suffering. And Gentile glory. If you didn't get all those, it's okay. I'll say them as I continue to walk through the sermon. <clears throat> Point number one, God's grace. Uh, the concept of grace is pretty simple to grasp, right? It's, it's being treated better than we deserve. Uh, you know, your kids can see that when they do something that deserves like a spanking and you go to them and you say, hey, you deserve a spanking, but I'm not going to give it to you because of grace. And they, they get it. It clicks for them. That's grace, right? And what we've been seeing so far uh, in chapter 2 is God's grace as it pertains to salvation and our reconciliation to God, the vertical, and our reconciliation to one another, the horizontal. But here in chapter 3, 1 through 13, Paul is going to shift and he's going to talk about a more narrow aspect of God's grace in his life. That is the, the, the grace in his life that made him an apostle, right? That, that made him a minister. That's what you see in verse 7. In verse 7 here, we see that it says, of this gospel I was made a minister. Now, when I say the word minister, you may think of a guy in black, you know, from head to toe with a little white dog collar, and he's the guy that gets called up in a hospital uh, or on the battlefield when somebody is about to die and they need to be read their final rites. Uh, you may think about it as kind of a, a profession or as an office in the church, but that's not what a minister is. A minister just means servant. The word here, diakonos, it's translated as servant elsewhere in the Bible, in the New Testament. Well, why is it translated minister here? Well, it's because of the, the kind of servant that Paul is. And if you want to know the kind of servant that Paul is, you can look in verse 2. 
In verse 2, we see that he has a specific ministry of stewardship. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. Right? So here Paul is filling out this concept of, of ministry a little bit more. If you remember from our time in Mark, uh, we said that a steward is a servant in the household who is given particular charge and oversight and care of certain aspects of their master's home and estate. And oftentimes, uh, it's used to refer to somebody who's like in charge of sort of everything, the macro. So like the, the master of the home leaves and goes away on business, and the servant is in charge of, of everything that happens while he's gone. He's, he's responsible for the care and the maintenance of everything that belongs to the master. Well, what does Paul say that he's been made a steward of? What is he responsible to have oversight of and care for? Well, it says the gospel, right? This is what Paul has been given oversight of. Now, we're going to talk more about the content of the gospel that Paul has uh, been given. But for now, I want us to just stop and pause and look at the way that Paul is talking about this gospel that he's been given. He talks about it as a grace He said, this grace that was given to me. That's pretty significant considering the fact that Paul is sitting in jail. He's imprisoned. He's bound in chains. Whenever he talks about himself in prison, he always talks about himself as a sufferer. And yet here Paul talks about this gospel that he's received that is a grace from God to him. But this very gospel is the reason why he's in chains. Yet in his mind, this ministry is a grace, not a burden. In verse 8, Paul emphasizes and further drills down into how much of a grace it is that he's received this. He says that he is the very least of all the saints. Paul is saying, how is it possible that I have been made a steward of this gospel when I'm the very least of the saints? This is an incredible thing for Paul to say. The least of the saints, Paul? Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, Paul calls himself the least of all the apostles. I don't even know. That's a, that's a pretty incredible thing to say when you think about, you know, doubting Thomas, Peter who denied Jesus three times, calling down curses on his head in an effort to deny Christ, who also, by the way, had to be rebuked by Paul face-to-face over a gospel infidelity issue. And nevertheless, Paul still says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Even as Paul sits in prison for the sake of the gospel, probably waiting to be executed, he wants to emphasize his own unworthiness. So we have to ask the question, is Paul being unnecessarily or even falsely self-deprecating here? You know, oh, woe is me. I'm just, one, I'm just the lowest of all sinners. Well, I think the answer to that has to be no. I'll tell you why. It seems like everywhere else that Paul talks about himself, he talks about himself the same way. It's a universal way that he talks about himself, like he really believes it to be true. Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and I think he really believes it. In other places, and actually in several places in Paul's writings, in his speeches, in his sermons, two different things, uh, Paul references the fact that he used to persecute the church. He actually says that he was a zealous persecutor of the church. It's like he can't get rid of it. He knows that he's forgiven, but he also knows that 
he's, he's low because of that, because of what he used to do. In other places, Paul talks about his inability to gain mastery over his flesh, right? Like you would expect an apostle of God to be able to do. You would expect an apostle of God to say, yeah, you know, that which I desire not to do, I don't do it. But Paul says the opposite. That which I desire not to do, I do. And that which I desire to do, I don't do. Paul recognizes how weak he is in his flesh. And if you add to that the fact that Paul had an encounter with Jesus Christ himself, the embodiment of holiness. You have to imagine that he walked away with that encounter with a deep impression on his own soul of his lack of holiness. There's just no way that you can come into contact with holiness embodied and not realize and carry with you the deep reality of your own unholiness. So I think when Paul says this, he means it. I think he does think that he is the least of all the saints whether it's true or not. And yet he stands tall as an apostle. He introduces himself at the beginning of the letter by saying authoritatively, I, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's saying you should listen to what I have to say. I'm not just some schlub. Here in these verses, he also refers to himself as an apostle, right? I'm one of the apostles and the prophets. I have a foundational work here in the life of the church. It's significant that even though Paul views himself as the least of all the saints and the least deserving of having a ministry like this, he also stands firm in his ministry. He doesn't fall victim to the woe is me, to the, uh, what I call, what I refer to as the Eeyore syndrome. Woe is me, I'm the least of all the saints. That's my Eeyore impersonation, guys. Okay, you guys with me? I'm unworthy. I'll go back and work on that. Thanks for your grace there. <clears throat> but... But no, I mean, Paul, on the one hand, understands his own weaknesses, but on the other hand, he understands the strength of God. He knows that he is not worthy, but he knows that God can make him worthy. He knows that he's not qualified, but God calls the unqualified and then qualifies them. So do you know that? Do you know that Christ is sufficient in your life for the ministry that you've been given? You should know that there's no such thing as a, as a ministry-less Christian. Every single Christian has a ministry. Some way, somehow, you are a steward of the gospel. Do you know that even though you may be the weakest of all the saints, at least in your own heart and mind, that you still have a ministry to carry out and you must carry it out. And God can be your strength for that. <clears throat> when I try to talk to people sometimes and I try to get them to do this discipleship thing over here, or this evangelism thing over here, or this teaching thing over here, or I encourage them to lead over there, I sometimes get this, you know, I just don't know, man. I just don't know. I mean, if there's a real serious deep sin issue, that's one thing. But most of us, it's just like, who am I to try to teach somebody else? I, I don't know if I can do that. I can't disciple someone. And I get it. I try to be gentle when people say that to me because this is like half of my battle on a daily basis as a pastor. You know, I mean, ask my wife. She knows how sinful I am. Uh, I, I know how inept I am. I know how lacking in wisdom I am. I just know the fact that I'm a young pastor is, is, a, is a strike against me, right? And so I, I just go, how could anybody ever want me to be their pastor? It just doesn't make any sense. But I have to find somehow, some way to have faith and trust that the Lord, as the book of Acts says, has made me an overseer in this church. 
The same thing is true of Grant and Russell and Michael. We all wrestle with feelings of inadequacy sometimes, but nevertheless, this is what God has done. He's put us in this position. But this doesn't just apply to pastors. It applies to you. Moms in the church, you have to believe that the grace that God has given you in the ministry that you have with your children is sufficient. Seven cups of coffee later, you know, God's grace is sufficient. Bags under your eyes, not sure how you're going to get it all done. You forgot to do devotionals and you're going to try again this week, but maybe you're afraid you're going to fail again. God's grace is sufficient. Members in the church, your ability to disciple one another. You have to believe that you have the ability to help other people follow Jesus. You don't have to do it as well as anybody else in the church. You shouldn't play comparison games. You do have the ability, though, and so you should seek out those opportunities or at least not shun them when the Lord Jesus brings them your way. To men in the church who may be doubting their ability to maybe one day lead and be elders in the church, God has called you to it, brothers. He will equip you. Maybe as a, as a deacon. Maybe, maybe as a small group leader. Maybe te- just teaching a Sunday school lesson. Maybe coming up here and praying a prayer. Which, by the way, if you notice, we run through the same people because so many other people are afraid to come up here. But you can do it because God's spirit lives in you. We're going to talk more about that next week. Point number two, the Gentile mystery. So in point number one, we talked about the fact that Paul's been made a steward of the gospel. In point number two, we're going to take a little bit of a deeper look into the specific uh, aspects of his ministry as a steward of the gospel. Those aspects are mystery and revelation. Look at verses three through five with me. Paul says, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, when you read this, You can perceive my insight, that's revelation, into the mystery of Christ, which has not been made known, that is, it was not revealed, to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. As Paul explains his ministry to the Ephesians, Ephesians, he he uses this language of mystery and revelation. So what's going on here, mystery and revelation? Uh, As I was preparing this week's sermon, I was looking for an illustration, and illustrations don't come natural to me, so I find myself on Google a lot. And uh, I was looking for uh, solved mysteries, you know, mysteries that have been solved. And uh, I got to tell you, there's not a lot out there on solved mysteries. Apparently, people are not very uh, into mysteries that have already been solved. They want to know about the unsolved mysteries. So I couldn't really come up with anything. But the mystery aspect of the gospel here is simple. Paul explains it. If you look at verse 6, he says right there, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is something that was not known. He says that they're joint heirs, part of a joint body, and joint partakers. Now, in the ESV, it doesn't say that, but if if you're in the NIV, you can see the, the, the Greek and the NASB where the same word is used three times. In the NIV, it's together, together, together. In the NASB, it says fellow, fellow, fellow. But the point is, is that we're all heirs, we're all part of the same body, and now we are all recipients of the same promise. And this is basically a summary of what we learned last week. 
that the Gentiles are now included into the elect people of God. They're being grafted in through the gospel. But at one point in time, this reality was not known. Paul says here that it was shrouded in mystery. Now that's not to say that God never said anything about it. It's not to say like this just kind of pops up on the radar in the New Testament. As early as the gospel's first pronouncement, Gentile inclusion was there. There were echoes of it. There were hints of it, shadows of it. In Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham, listen to what he says. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that family language, that's ancient Jewish way of talking about nations or people groups or tribes, and we're going to see that next week. Paul uses that same language. He talks about families in reference to all the Gentile nations. So all the way back in Genesis 12, when God was calling Abraham the father of the Jewish people, he was making a promise that one day he was going to bring the Gentiles in. But a big, a big part of this mystery was how. How was God going to do this? He didn't really lay the plan out. He didn't say A, B, C, D. In verse 9, we see that God definitely had a plan. But for a very long time, it seemed like he was playing it close to his chest. Paul says in verse 5 that the contents of that plan were not made known to the sons of men in other generations. But now, says Paul, it has been fully revealed. Mm. Okay, so there was a mystery, and it was hidden for a while. God was playing it close to his chest, but then he finally revealed it. Okay, well, how did he reveal it? Who did he reveal it to? Well, verse 5 says it. It says, to his, in reference to God, to his holy apostles and prophets. Uh, apostles and prophets are two offices that no longer exist in the life of the church today, but that were foundational to the church at her inception. So if you remember last week, uh, where Paul said in chapter 2, verse 20, that the apostles and prophets were part of the foundation of this church, of the new temple that was being built. I said we're not going to talk much about that today because we're going to talk about it next week. Well, today is next week. You're tracking. So here we go. There was a certain foundational work that needed to be done in the life of the church. And that work was the work of receiving this revelation, right? God had a plan for the gospel. It was kept in secrecy for a time. God wanted to reveal it, and he chose to reveal it through the apostles and prophets. So as they received the word of God, this revelation about the mystery and the light was cast into their hearts, they went out and they spoke it. They preached it. They proclaimed this mystery and revealed. They, they shed light into the darkness through the preaching. They were the mouthpiece of God as he was doing this new thing with this new covenant people of God. But that was just a foundational work. It didn't need to keep happening. Once this light was revealed, once the mystery was kind of solved, there was no need for the apostles and prophets any longer. When you think about uh, construction sites, the guys who go in and they lay the foundation for the building, like over here with the Cook's Museum, you know, once they got the foundation laid, they didn't kind of like hang around and keep mixing cement while the framers were putting up the walls and the roofers were laying the roof and while the people were inside putting up the drywall while Eric was laying the carpet. You know, they didn't do that. Once the foundation is laid, the foundation layers go away. 
for that reason, brothers and sisters, we no longer have a need for apostles and prophets in the church anymore. I don't have this in my notes, but a slight point of application for you. If you meet somebody who calls themselves an apostle or prophet, please remember this sermon. Keep it in mind that they are not. <laughs> okay? All right. But in Paul's day, their work was very much needed. God used them for his special purposes at this new phase in covenant history redemption to go out and proclaim this special unique aspect to the gospel and so that's what Paul did Paul went out to the Jews and he said listen Christ is the Messiah and he's not only the Messiah of Jews he's the Messiah of all the families of the earth and they hated him for it and they rejected him then he went to the Gentiles and he said hey guys the hostility is over the tension has ceased the enmity has been erased the doors of heaven have been flung wide open. Come in and join us. Enter through the door that is Christ crucified. This is what Paul means in verse 9 when he says that his ministry is, quote, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Does it seem strange to you that God would not fully reveal his plan from the outset? You know, like, God, man, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been a lot easier if you just would have told us from the beginning that there was going to be this Jew-Gentile hostility for a while, and then you were going to send your son and fully God and fully man and the atonement, and there was going to be reconciliation, so don't worry. Yeah, Probably. I don't really have anything profound to say here. I just imagine that you may be asking, God, why, why like this? Why not some other way? And friends, whenever I find myself beginning to ask questions like that, I find myself quickly underwater. When I start entering into that Job frame of mind, I, I don't want God to come to me and to, to rebuke me and say, where were you when I laid the foundations and I did this and I did that? And I don't want to be sitting there with my hand over my mouth repenting in the dust because I chose to ask things that were sort of out of my pay grade. What I do know is that God has revealed enough in his word. And everything else, Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Point number three, God's wisdom. We've talked about the attributes of God at great length in this church. Uh, and one of the things that we've said about these, you know, grace, wrath, kindness, gentleness, omniscience, omnipotence, you know, we can go down the list, right? All these things that make God who he is. We've said that God not only possesses these attributes, but that he broadcasts these attributes. God not only is gracious, but he wants everyone to look at him and go, look how gracious God is, and then to praise him and to glorify him for his grace. We know that God not only possesses the, the, uh, the attribute of wrath, but that God actually wants all of creation to look at his wrath and to go, and to tremble, oh no, the wrath of God, and to glorify him for his wrath. In Romans 9, you see that. God wants his wrath and his power and his patience to be glorified. In Ephesians 1 and 2, we saw, we saw that God was doing everything that he was doing so that his grace and mercy and love and his saving power would be glorified. He was showing it off. God's a show-off. That's what we saw there. And now in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul says that God wants to show off the attribute of his wisdom. Look at verse 10. 
So that, so why is God doing everything that he's doing with the Gentiles? Why the mystery? Why all this? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says that this gospel of grace that was once hidden and has now been revealed, it communicates something about God's wisdom. And he is so right. When you consider the gospel, don't you just see heavenly wisdom there? I mean, you just think about a a man trying to invent this gospel. You think about a group of men, a coalition, a congress of men trying to come together and conjure up a gospel like this. And it just seems like it's, it's just not possible. I don't care what think tank you can come up with. They just, this is supernatural wisdom on display. When I was studying this, I was thinking about uh, Amber and I and how we're planning on going on vacation in June. Woo, woo. And, uh, you know, how it almost didn't happen because we weren't really wise enough to figure out all the details, what to do with the kids, affordable hotel accommodations, working around my schedule at the church, going to a place that we're mutually interested in. You should also know that we still don't all have it all figured out. We have a hotel room booked for our first two nights, so please pray that for the next four nights uh, we don't end up uh, attacked by homeless people while we sleep on a park bench. But, uh, you know, I don't believe in any high-level conspiracy theories because I don't think people are wise enough to hold it all together for that long, to keep that big of a secret. If anything that the federal government and democracy in general has proven, it's that larger groups of people don't necessarily have the ability to plan and prepare and uh, execute governance uh, necessarily better because they're so much larger. Two heads are better than one, and there is uh, more wisdom in a council of many, but there also seems to be a theory of diminishing returns on that, okay? And so when you look at the gospel, you just say, you know, there has to be something supernatural, divine here. Jew and Gentile, Reconciled in one body, wisdom. How can God be both the just and the justifier? Through the cross, wisdom. And you could just keep going. But the question is, how is God showing off this wisdom, right? God wants to broadcast it. When he wanted to show off his wrath, he raised up Pharaoh and crushed him. When God wanted to show off his mercy, he raised up Moses and led him to be the redeemer of his people. How is God showing off his wisdom? Well, verse 10 says it. He's doing it through the church. The church is the thing that God is using to make this wisdom known to all. Now, in verse 3, we saw that Paul says that this mystery was, these two words were used, made known to him. This gospel was made known to me. Now, in verse 10, you see that the wisdom of this gospel is being made known to everyone else. Here, Paul specifically says the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, this almost certainly refers to uh, angels and demons and Satan and and all of that, but I I think it's also more universal in tone. I I think this is just a way of saying, listen, anyone and everyone, and especially angels and demons and the rulers of the dark world, This doesn't mean that Paul and the apostles, as they're laying their foundation in the, of work in the church, 
Uh, it doesn't, excuse me, as they're doing the work of laying the foundation of the gospel in the church, I don't think this means that they are preaching directly to these spiritual authorities in the heavenly places. I think what this means is that the mere existence of the church is a perpetual sermon on the wisdom of God. The mere existence of it. These authorities and powers, they look at the church, and when they see the church, they see God's wisdom embodied. E.F. Scott says it like this. I'm going to read about a paragraph. He's not the most eloquent writer, but he's careful. So if you listen carefully, you will benefit from what he says. The hostile powers had sought to frustrate the work of God and believed that they had succeeded when they conspired against Christ and brought about his crucifixion. But unwittingly, they had been mere instruments in God's hands. The death of Christ had been the very means he had devised for the accomplishment of his plan. So it is here declared that the hostile powers, after the brief apparent triumph, had now become aware of a divine wisdom that they had never even dreamed of. They saw the church arising as a result of Christ's death in giving effect to what they could now perceive to have been the hidden purposes of God. Friends, may our understanding of the gospel never be separated from our appreciation of and love for the church. It is, the reason why I brought that book from the bookstall up here today to, to recommend to you is because we live in an age where people think that they can follow Jesus but not be a part of a church. Friends, that's just not true. When you, when, you, when you believe that, what you believe is the opposite of what scripture says, that the church is so vitally important. It's important for you, but it's also important for God's eternal divine purposes. The church is the gospel made visible. When I go out and I share the gospel with someone, they can't see it. If they say, Sean, what does that look like, right? Put some feet on it. Help me understand what you're talking about. Grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, all that. I'm not gonna point to myself. I'm gonna point to this. I'm gonna point to the church. If they ask, what does grace look like? I'm gonna point to the church. What does reconciliation look like? The church. What do love and forgiveness and commitment look like? The church. What do holiness and sanctification look like? Look at the church. What does the wisdom of God look like? Look at the church. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a declaration of what God has already done, but the church is a perpetual sermon that preaches the glories of what God is actively doing. And he's doing it for all the world to see, for all the universe. In light of this reality, uh, I think a point of application here is the way that we live our lives together as a church will either obscure the visibility of this wisdom or it will enhance the visibility of this wisdom to the, to the watching world. I think we have to be perpetually asking ourselves this question. Are we obstructing the view of God's wisdom to the world or are we amping up the broadcast signal with the way that we live together? The church universal has not had a spotless track record when it comes to displaying God's wisdom. We have failed more times than I can count, from slavery to the Crusades to you name it, Augustine using government force to try to quell heresy and uh, factionalism in the life of the church, even just if you read the pages of the New Testament, you can see that we've never really had a perfect track record. 
but we can't fix that. We can't, we can't go back in time and fix what happened then. We can express sorrow over our errors, uh, errors from the past, and then we can work diligently to make sure that we now, as a church, are being faithful to this vision. So with that in mind, uh, I have four subpoints for you here. This is the longest point of the sermon, by the way, so stop hyperventilating. These are four areas that I think we can focus on to either enhance the visibility of the wisdom of God in the life of the church or to obstruct it. Number one is this, what we gather around. What we gather around. Here I'm just simply referring to affinity groups. You know, uh, there's nothing particularly amazingly wise about a church full of mutual Alabama fans. You know, I was a member of a church where everyone was an Auburn fan and like, it was just like, really, there's nobody here? I mean, not that I care, but it was just weird that there was a, a whole church where not, like nobody there really was from an opposing team. Maybe there's some sports dynamic I don't understand there. But there's nothing particularly amazing about that wisdom. What is amazing is when you have a bunch of people who don't really have that much in common who still come together and they gather around Jesus Christ. I mean, look around this room, you know? Different backgrounds, different education levels, different incomes, different races, uh, different hobbies and interests. We got uh, disc golf people in this church, you know what I'm saying? I mean, if that doesn't highlight the wisdom of God in the church, I don't know what does. There's a reason why you're not going to see very many affinity groups in the life of the church. When I, when I say affinity groups, what I mean is like you're not going to see a homeschool mom Bible study or a Alabama fans book club. And the reason why is because that's just what the world does. The world gets together with a bunch of people who have shared interests and hobbies. We gather around God's word. We gather around Christ despite our differences, not because of them. And I think that when we do that, we look distinct to the world. And when churches do that, when they build their life together around their common interests, I don't think they do anything to make themselves seem different from the watching world. Point number two, what we trust in. Oh, the list here could be so long. What we trust in says something about God's wisdom as a church. Do we trust in money? Not in this church, amen. Do we trust in talented staff? Come on now, double amen, not in this church. But you know it, right? You know the churches that trust in that young, cool, hip, well-dressed guy with the, you know, he's just a fantastic communicator. He's got the personality and the vibe. And man, as long as we have this guy, we're going to make it. We're going to be a big, healthy church. Do we trust in new and unique strategies for church growth and evangelism, the newest cutting-edge thing? Or are we trusting in the means that God has made available to us, the faithful preaching and teaching of God's word? Do we trust in cultural relevance? I just saw a clip on social media this week of, uh, of a church that has converted their stage into a basketball court to do uh, a sermon series for March Madness that is basketball themed. And the preacher is shooting baskets in the hoop while he's preaching. Uh, friends, I don't think that that says anything distinctive about the wisdom of God in the life of the church. What that says is we're going to try to get people into the church by attracting them through things of this world. That does not make God look wise. 
Number three, what we tolerate. This one's short and simple. Do we tolerate sin? Do we tolerate the things that God tells us not to tolerate? If you remember both in 1 Corinthians and in Jude when we walked through them on Wednesday nights, what we saw is that these churches, they had their own wisdom and in their own wisdom, they thought that they knew a better way to handle sin than the way that God in his word had prescribed that sin should be handled. So when we handle sin in the life of the church in a way that's foreign to the Bible, we're diminishing God's wisdom. Number four, what we celebrate, or you could say what we treasure or what we're excited about. You know, you think about, uh, you know, you have a friend who just watched this new TV show and he really wants to get you in on it, or this new movie and they're so excited, they're like evangelizing you for it, or this new restaurant that you absolutely have to try, even though hot chicken really isn't that good. Sorry, a little personal frustration there. But that's what I'm talking about. What are we most emphatic about? What are we most excited about? Individually and as a church. Individually, just, I think one of the easiest ways to see this is look at social media. You know, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the fingers tweet, and the Instagram pictures post, and the Facebook rants rant. And I think a good question to ask yourself is, if the world looks at your social media feed, what do they see that you're most passionate about? What are you most excited about? What do you most treasure? Is it something that will make God look wise and glorious? As a church, we have to ask ourselves this same question, right? What are we most excited about? What do we treasure? Here's a good question. What do we carve out time for? What do we prioritize in our gatherings? Well, I think if you look at our Sunday mornings, our Wednesday nights, our members' meetings, even our elders' meetings, for those of you who have sat in on them occasionally, or if you read our church documents, you can see the things that we treasure, that we value, that we prioritize. In baptisms, we celebrate conversion. In the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the cross of Christ and his second coming. In our corporate gatherings, we are excited about God's word. It always, always, always takes center stage. We are emphatic about sound doctrine in our statement in faith, a statement of faith. We are very much concerned with living out the gospel in love when you look at our church covenant. We care about the actual preaching of the gospel and you know it because the gospel is preached every Sunday in this pulpit. We are committed to the Great Commission in our budget and will become increasingly so as we are financially able. We are committed to prayer in our elders' meetings. For those of you who have sat in on an elders' meeting, you've seen that I think a, a third or maybe a half of what we do is just praying, praying for you, the members of this church. The very presence of the church displays the wisdom of God, but the way that we exist together as a church will either obscure that wisdom or enhance it. So let's be on guard. Let's be diligent. Let's be hungry and eager and excited about showing God's wisdom to a lost and dying world. Point number four, Paul's suffering. So we finally return to the theme of Paul's imprisonment. This is what we started talking about at the beginning of the sermon. At the time of this writing, Paul has maybe been in prison for three to four years. We're not really sure. This is me just kind of going, yeah, you guys are smarter than me in these commentaries. I think you're probably right. But even they say we're not, we're not really sure. And things have not been easy for Paul. In verse one, Paul says this, in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. In verse 13, he says that he is suffering for you, referring to the Gentiles. 
Now, you gotta be careful with the tone that you read this. It could, if you read this a certain way, sound like Paul is sort of blaming the Ephesians for his imprisonment, right? I'm suffering for you. I'm in prison because of you guys. But that's not really what's happening here. Paul is merely just describing his ministry. His ministry is a gospel that involves Gentile inclusion. And because he's been so faithful to preach that, he's been put in prison. He's been made an enemy of his own people. And when I say because of that, I I don't just mean like in general, I mean specifically in Acts 21. Paul is arrested after he caused a stir with the Jews at the temple. And listen to what his adversaries say. They say, fellow Israelites, help us. So rally cry. This is the man who teaches everyone, everywhere, Gentiles, against our people and our law in this place. And besides that, he has brought Greeks, another word for Gentile, into the temple and defiled this holy place. Then in Acts 22, as Paul begins to offer up his defense before the crowd, the text says that they go silent. It says that they became very silent. They sat down and they listened to what Paul had to say. They probably didn't really sit down, but they sat and they listened to what he had to say. Until he got to this point, after a very long speech, he gets to this point. It says, then the Lord, referring to Jesus, said to me, go and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And Luke tells us what happened next. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and they shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. There's an ultimate sense, as verse 1 says, that Paul is a prisoner of Christ Jesus or a prisoner for Christ Jesus. But in a very real sense, Paul is also a prisoner because of this gospel he preaches for the Gentiles. But don't worry, says Paul in verse 13. I am in prison, but don't worry, don't lose heart. Why? Because my suffering is your glory. Point number five, the Gentiles' glory. What does it mean when Paul says, my suffering is, because there's no other word there, he doesn't say for, what is he, my suffering is your glory. In order to answer that, I would like for us all, please, in our Bibles to turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2 to look to a place where Paul uses similar, similar language. 2 Timothy chapter 2. In verses 8 through 10. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Ugh, you could preach a whole sermon on that. I'm bound, but the word of God is not bound. Verse 10, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So, in verses 8 and 9, Paul tells Timothy to remember the gospel for which he's suffering. Well, how is he suffering? The text says, it says that he's bound, he's in chains, and it also says that he's being treated like a criminal, so he's in prison. It's the same thing as Ephesians 3. Then in verse 7, Paul says that he endures everything for the sake of the elect. Well, what's the everything that Paul endures? It's the suffering, the chains, the being bound. It's his imprisonment. 
And it says he embraces it all for the sake of the elect. What does that mean? What does it mean that he embraces it for their sake? Well, he says, it says that the reason why I'm doing all of this is so that the elect, God's chosen people, may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I'm suffering what I'm suffering so that you can go to be with Jesus in glory. And that's what's happening in Ephesians. That's what he's telling them. He's saying, don't worry, don't lose heart. I know I'm suffering, but I'm doing this for you so that you can go to be with Jesus in his glory. The church is the means by which God is displaying his wisdom in the world. And the suffering of the saints is the means by which the Gentiles, all the nations of the earth, are being ushered into eternal glory. This is true today, friends. The suffering of the saints, all saints, all saints. You may not end up in prison, but you are called to suffer for the gospel. You're either going to go down into the well or you need to hold the rope for people who do. But all saints, our suffering is the means by which God is ushering the lost peoples of the earth into his glory. When Amber and I were first preparing to go to the mission field, we went uh, down to Florida to sort of have like our preview and interview with this missions organization. And they wanted to help us count the cost of going to the mission field. And so they sat us down and this guy who was leading the meeting, he told us about a young missionary woman, a single lady who went to Afghanistan to minister to young Afghani women and to share the gospel with them. Uh, He told us about her being beheaded uh, the year prior. And he said, how should we think about this? How should we respond to this? Should we just stop sending people over there because it's too dangerous? Then after people kind of gave their responses with varying levels of biblical accuracy and varying levels of emotion, he opened up his Bible and he read Ephesians chapter three, verse 13. Our suffering is their glory. Paul wants the Ephesians to know that his suffering is not something to lose heart over. He wants them to know that somehow, some way, God is using it to bring all the sons and daughters of the kingdom home to glory. That's why Paul says in Ephesians that it has been granted to us. It's a gift for us that we not only believe in Christ but also suffer for his sake. There's no such thing as wasted suffering in the economy of God's glory, brothers and sisters. It doesn't exist. The greatest suffering that this world has ever known was experienced by Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, the beloved Son of God, and his death on the cross. And you need to know that not a drop of his blood was wasted. And when the saints go and die for the gospel, not a drop of their blood is wasted either. In conclusion, the church was founded by a Savior who died on the cross. He was buried and he remained in the grave for three days. But then he rose again victorious. And now that he has risen, there will never be a true crisis in the church. I'm not saying it won't feel like things are getting shaky. I'm not saying we won't feel like things are kind of just being held together by a string. But you should know, you should have a faith that undergirds that momentary sensation of uneasiness. You should know that the victory is won. When Christ died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he meant it. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against the wisdom of God and the church. Ever. Now, if you're here this morning and you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, you're just like, I don't know, man. I feel like I'm losing heart all the time. I feel like I have no stability. I feel like I, feel like I can fall over any minute. If you feel hopeless, why do you think that is? Could it be that you're looking for hope in all the wrong places to slightly tweak a, an old Western song, you know? Could it be that you're looking for your own glory instead of God's glory? Is it possible that you're trusting in your own strength of heart to get you through? You should know that the doors of heaven have been flung wide open so that any man or woman who repents of their sins and trusts in Christ can now come into the kingdom of God. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the doors of heaven have been flung open and now in the church all the saints of God stand on the other side of the threshold and they are beckoning you to come in and to join them in glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we long to see your glory. It feels so far away. We pray that you would bring us home quickly. And we pray that as we come, we would bring as many of your elect as possible with us according to the strength of your power. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.